You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, today, in light of Christmas, we're stepping away from the book of Philippians just for a week or two and going to specifically talk about why Christmas matters. Why does it matter? Why do we celebrate it? What's the big deal? Tomorrow night, we'll be able to, as a family, worship God for who he is and what he's done. And hopefully, in light of today's sermon, today's teaching, It'll inform you a bit more. It'll bring more significance to Christmas than you had before. Myself, I didn't grow up in the church. I'm not a product of uh, kids' church and Sunday schools, and my parents aren't believers. And so I didn't grow up in that. I've been saved, you know, for a while now. But I feel like I'm only a teenager in some ways when it comes to significant holidays that you should have grown up with, whether it's Easter or Christmas. And so this is a a sermon, a teaching coming from a place of almost God God informing me, bringing more significance to Easter for myself, um, and hopefully it will also. But it's looking at the broad scope of what has happened in the world in Scripture and the the significance of the manger in the middle. Uh, Let me pray for our time today. God, thank you for the ability to gather. Thank you for the ability to have this space to meet in. Thank you for this community and this family that you have built and you are building. And the reason that we gather and that we desire to gather today is to hear from you, to learn of you, to learn more about you. Holy Spirit, would you direct our time? Would you guide and give me your words to speak? to help me communicate clearly the significance, the pivotal role and significance that the birth of of Christ is for the entirety of the world in all of history. So God, we give you this time and ask that you'd have your way. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a few accounts of the birth of Christ. One of the the main ones that we'd go to is the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. The very first and second chapter, it speaks of the birth of Christ. And interjected, Matthew 121, it's an angel speaking to Joseph during a dream. And this one verse is where we're going to springboard out of for the rest of our time. But this angel is speaking to Joseph because Mary is all of a sudden become pregnant. Joseph and Mary are not married at this time. They haven't done anything. It's just miraculously happened. And Joseph is like, "Uh uh-oh, what's happened? How did Mary get pregnant? And he's secretly trying to like do away with the upcoming marriage and discreetly and secretly kind of trying to deal with it to not bring Mary shame. It's like this family scandal that's about to pop is what's happening. And an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream as Joseph is wrestling with what to do. And an angel speaks to him and he says this. This is part of what he says. In verse 21 of Matthew 1. 
He says, she, speaking of Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is such a big statement. Maybe the craziest thing that Joseph could have heard that night is that this son that Mary's about to give birth to will save Israel, save God's people from their sins. What that would have meant is it means that the Savior was coming, the Messiah, the promised Messiah that the Jewish nation had been speaking about, there was prophecies about that they had been waiting for was about to come. I mean, this is crazy. First of all, that an angel is even talking to Joseph. That's crazy. Then it wasn't like advice how to like kill the marriage. It was, wait, hold on. The baby that's about to be born is the savior of the world that came to save us from our sins, that would save both the, the Jew and the Gentile. This is crazy. Again, if you're not in Israel 2,000 years ago, you're not Jewish, this may not be crazy to you. And that's, that's why I think we have a hard time relating to why Christmas is such a big deal. We're so far removed from the original context of what was happening at the time in the world in the place that this happened. But if you have any idea, like pre-Jesus being born, right, pre-Christmas 2,000 years ago, the world was in a really bad spot, especially Israel, the whole world was, and it always had been, in a place that had struggled to obey and be with God and listen to God. Israel was in a really bad place. The world's in a really bad spot. It's because of sin. The story up to this point, it's important that we see it in light of, the, the manger is only important or significant if you see what's been happening. In, in the thousands of years leading up to Christmas morning. And in order to do that, we have to start where? At the beginning. And it started literally the first couple chapters of scripture. It's really important that so many times to understand God and what he's doing, what he's up to, and the importance of it, go to the start. It's like a book. You read a book. If you miss the first chapter... Miss the first, first paragraph sometimes, the first page sometimes. You'll miss out on the entirety of what's, been go, what's going on. And what's important about Genesis is that the world in its inception, as God spoke it into existence, he declared that it was good and it was really good. I mean, everything was perfect. It was wonderful. The first two chapters of the Bible, you're like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Then chapter three happens. Chap Genesis chapter three, like what is that? Like a page or two into your Bible, changes the course of the world forever. Everything turns bad when Adam and Eve disobey God. They eat the, the fruit from the tree they shouldn't have. Sin enters the world and the effects of sin we're still feeling today. It all happened in a garden that was perfect, Genesis chapter three. God's plan and God's design was good. Sin entered the world, and from there, everything got really bad. 
It actually got so bad really quickly. Man rebelled so much. Things were so out of control that six chapters into the Bible, what happens? The flood. God's like, I can't, this can't happen. Everything's being ruined. People are killing each other and murdering each other. I mean, this is out of control. And God starts over, essentially. Noah, his immediate family, all the animals, the ark, that's where it's from, right there. Six chapters in, gets really bad, and God starts over. Besides Noah and his immediate family, everything is, is a clean slate. What happens is it doesn't take too long for uh, Genesis chapter 11 to happen. The Tower of Babel, right? And instead of worshiping God and using their resources to worship God, humanity builds this amazing tower to worship themselves in essence. God scatters everywhere, everyone all over the earth because they were worshiping themselves rather than worshiping God. It's just like... God's plan to start over didn't work. Sin is continuing to invade this perfect place that he has made. Genesis chapter 12. I won't go through the whole Bible like this, by the way. I know you're like, dude, what are you doing? You're like 12 chapters in. We're almost... I won't. I'll speed up really quick. For those of you who know the Bible, you're like, there's a lot left. Genesis chapter 12 is a big deal. This is where God through Abraham, makes an Abraham, it's called the Abrahamic covenant. It's God told Abraham that he, through his family, would make people that would be different from the world. That people would eventually be the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel would come out of Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant in, in, in Genesis chapter 12 we see a turning point where instead of the whole of humanity, much of the Bible is concentrated on one family and their offspring, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the nation of Israel starts to form through this family. And the book of Genesis ends with it highlighting Joseph, one of his sons, uh, Jacob's sons, that, that finds favor in Egypt. But ultimately, what happens is at the end, uh, Joseph has a lot of favor with the Pharaoh at the time, but the Pharaoh at the time is no longer in power. A new Pharaoh comes. He says, all these Israelites, these, these, these people that are different from us, from that different land up north, is going to be trouble for us. And so the children of Israel, Abraham's offspring, the people of God get enslaved. And they're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years of bondage, but right, then there's Moses, and God uses Moses to, to free the people of Israel, and then you have all the, obviously, dramatic tales of the, the Red Sea parting and God's people being freed from bondage, and so God shows up after 400 years to free his people. There's a lot of excitement. God is with us. He's not forgotten us. The people of God are, are going forward, and then what happens is, is they, they wander in the wilderness for a while because of their disobedience, because they didn't trust God. They didn't, they didn't listen. So once again, even after these incredible moves of God, humanity is still disobedient. They wander, they wander for a while, but eventually in the book of Joshua, what do we see? Finally, they're back to the promised land. 
the promised land that God had promised Abraham that the nation would flourish in, the nation of Israel. They'd be so numerous. It'd be like the stars in the sky. Finally, hundreds of years later, they're in the promised land. And things should be good. It almost should be like another Eden. The way that the Bible speaks of the promised land is like a a land flowing of milk and honey. Right, it's perfect, it's wonderful. It's everything that God always intended and he's, he's given them the law in the wilderness. They have all these things that they should live by. They're supposed to be a people that are supposed to be set apart and holy and different from the rest of the world. Right, finally they're home. The nation and people that God promised Abraham were finally home. And again, think about it. God was always good. He always came through on his promises. He always provided You can't escape God's goodness and grace that has been extended so far to humanity. But what happened? What happened? Time after time, the children of Israel don't follow their God. They disobey. They turn from the law. They start worshiping other gods. They live how they want to live, disregarding all that God has done. In in essence... God's special holy people depart from their creator. And much of the Old Testament is filled with stories of people, men and women, that God uses as kings and judges and prophets to try to continue for the, to, to tell the people of Israel to come and follow God. Prophets are speaking the truth of what they do. The kings are supposed to try to lead the nation into obedience to God the Father. Judges are trying to keep rule more or less and lead these people to, to be reminded of God's truth. But... What happened is, man, things, things weren't good and far from what God planned and the results of sin were continuing and were slowly destroying everyone and everything. And it culminated with Israel actually be, uh, in, being invaded and exiled, taken again from their land through the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Far from what God intended. I mean, over and over and over, God was faithful. God tried to give them options and to save them and to show them what was better for them in a better way and every single time humanity turned their back on God. But right before the impending invasion and doom by the Assyrians, the prophet Isaiah spoke of something that was coming. Isaiah 9:6, speaking to Israel, for us, For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the midst of an incredibly horrific scene that the world was in, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the manger. One day, Jesus is coming to set all things right. In context, that's where that Isaiah 9 passage is. I know that for many of us, we put it on our cards that we sent, just sent out or we have it on our Christmas mug. This, pro- this prophecy was in the midst 
of God's people disobeying him to the point where they were being invaded and exiled from the promised land. But God said, I hear you and I see you and I'm not done and my son is coming. Finally, right, we're back in the land towards the end of the Old Testament. And uh, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi ends. And there's about 430 years of silence. Another four centuries go on when it seems like God was silent. And the book of Matthew comes along. Then the gospels come along. But we know that God was never silent. He was preparing the perfect time and the perfect place to do exactly what he said would do. And what happened was four centuries passed and then one night, in a little town of Bethlehem, a star appeared. In Luke 2, it says that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Do you see what's happening? It's not just a big deal that God would humble himself to the point of a baby and be born in a manger. That's significant. But do you see how significant it is to the, the nation of Israel and to the world for all that's been happening? The birth of Jesus is God the Father's declaration that he cares and he loves us. It's God saying, I was never not here. I see your plight. I see the damage that you're doing and that you have done. I see that you're in despair and you're in exile and you're in hurt and you're in pain. And I see your plight and I'm sending help and it's a baby and it's my son. The culmination of all of God's love for humanity is found in Jesus. Like if the nation of Israel hadn't seen God demonstrate his love already, this would have been the ultimate show of unconditional love that God the Father would send his son to the earth to live and die a sinner's life and a sinner's death for sinners. Like this is, this would have been by far like, like blown away, jaw-dropping would not have been, there, there's no words that, does, that doesn't even describe it. And what we see is what God always intended to do. John 3, 16 and 17, you guys know this. For this is how God loved the world. This is how he did it. He gave his one and only son so that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. God sent his son to rescue us and free us. What happened in Bethlehem is because what happened in Eden in Genesis chapter 3 is the reason why Jesus had to come. We, humanity, 
was God's sole motivation for this rescue mission. He was rescuing us from ourselves, from our sin, from the consequences of our sin. God came for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Despite, remember, we're not like lovers of God at this point. You know, like most of the world is in rebellion. Like, like God came despite humanity's sinful, rebellious, and disobedient condition. The manger, Christmas, was the turning point in the entire story of the world because it told us that the cross was coming, that help has come, that God has sent his own son. And even the gifts that the wise men would bring to the birth of Christ would signify and point to what Jesus would do 33 years ahead. What he would do on the cross. Right, the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh, excuse me. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, like today, was always valuable. But even back then, it, it was of chief value. A lot of times, obviously, you just didn't give away gold. It was only at some kind of royal ceremony. Gold, giving gold to someone as a gift was only befitting for a king. That's why the wise men knew that this wasn't just any baby. This was the king of kings. This was the Lord of lords. This was the savior, the Messiah of the world. Frankincense many times was used in, in ceremonial worship due to its, its pleasant aroma. And so when there would be worship of God, they would have frankincense burning around and it would be like a sweet aroma to God as an act of worship. And so they brought frankincense as a way to say, you're deity, you're God. This is a way, a sweet smelling aroma to you as an act of worship. But what's most important to note is, is myrrh was a spice that was used heavily. It was a key ingredient in the burial process in the Middle East at that time. So the embalming process, the burial process, when someone died, a key ingredient to that, that ointment, that salve that you would put on the body would be myrrh. There was other uses for it also, but if you gave someone a gift of myrrh, it would have been a little strange. It almost would have been similar to like, here's, a, here's an urn for your ashes when you die. Giving a baby that. But these wise men knew what was coming. This was the promised Messiah that came, that was born to die. The book of Hebrews speaks of this. Hebrews 2, 14, 15, and 17 says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son, speaking of Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die? And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us as brothers and sisters so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God that he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. 
The cross of Christ at Calvary, the place of the skull, Golgotha. In other words, Calvary, the place right outside the city walls in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. And the subsequent resurrection from the dead was the completion of the mission that Christ was sent for some 33 years earlier. What happened in Bethlehem was always pointing to what would happen at Calvary. The goal, the prize, the reason why God would do that was to restore a relationship. He made man and woman in his own image. He desired to commune with them. Sin broke that relationship. Sin and the effects of sin is constantly separating us from God. What Jesus did by dying in our place, forgiving our sins, taking away our sins, was that it restored once again humanity's relationship to a holy God. Because 2 Corinthians 5 would say that Jesus took our sins upon himself and he imputed, he gave us his righteousness. He gave us right standing before God because of what he did on the cross so that we could be with God. That is the gospel. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To forgive our sin. Yes, but what was the pur purpose of forgiving our sins? So that we could be with God. God has always tr been trying to get us. It's always what he's been trying to do is to be with us because at the core of it, he loves us. He doesn't want something out of us. He doesn't want to use us or enslave us or, or us to be like his minions to do whatever he wants to do. God's end goal is that we would be with him for all of eternity and do what? Just be with him and worship him because he's God. You know you truly love someone when it doesn't matter what you want to do with them. It doesn't matter you have to do some fun activity or go to an awesome restaurant or you don't always have to be giving gifts to someone. You just want to be with that person. When you can get to the point when you say, I just want to be with you. We don't have to do anything. I don't care what we have to do. Oh, you got something there. There's something true to that. Because it reflects God's love for us of being with us. Jesus his death on the cross, which started in Bethlehem, restores a broken relationship. Romans 5, 6 through 9 says this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people wouldn't be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the Christmas story. Paul Tripp, now if you're reading that Advent devotional along with a lot of us, uh, yesterday, this is a quote um, describing this. He says, the Christmas story is the world's best love story. It's about a God of love sending the son of his love to live a life of love and die a death of love so that all who believe in him 
would be welcomed into the arms of his love forever and ever. Embedded in the Christmas story is a promise of unbroken love for the children of God. You can do the dumbest thing and God will still love you. You can have a day when you ignore his existence and God will still love you. You can fail to do what he's called you to do and he will still love you. Our relationship with God has never depended on the faithfulness of our obedience. If God withdrew his love every time we failed, there would be no hope for any of us. The unbreakable faithfulness of God's love for us is such a huge comfort precisely because we're unfaithful. The unstained perfection of God's love gives such hope to us because we aren't perfect. Are you guys seeing the like magnificence and beauty of what happened in the manger? You just saw like the greatest love story of all time unfold. Probably did a poor job telling you. Should have read a book. Read the Bible. It's in there. That's the book. Christmas is so much more about happy birthday, Jesus. Yeah, it's his birthday. Sure. He was born in a manger. But it is the pivotal moment in history that connects to Eden and points to Calvary. Without it, sin is still existent. Without it, we're still in our sins. Without it, we are still far from God. I don't know about you, but one of the scariest things is thinking about being lost at sea. I'll take a centipede. I'll take a spider. I'll take the dark. I'll take a small space. I'll I'll take it. But if you've ever seen any movies, read any books, being lost at sea just seems absolutely miserable. And it's kind of a real thing for us a little bit, because if you drift a little too far off any beach here, you're in the biggest ocean in the world. Where all the books are written, where all the movies take place, is being lost at sea in this ocean. Go in the ocean, have fun. Just be careful. But see, here's the thing. When you're lost at sea, you are miserably helpless and lost. Like... You can't do anything. I mean, there's nothing at all besides just trying to stay alive, which that in itself is almost impossible when you have, if you have nothing. You feel utterly helpless. What's the greatest thing that could ever happen when you feel utterly helpless at sea? What's the greatest thing? Yeah, food is good, but you, I want food. I want water. What's the greatest thing that could happen? You see a boat. Not only that, it's not good enough to you see the boat, but the boat sees you, and the boat's coming towards you. I've never been lost at sea, but I can imagine the fact that you, the moment that you realize that help is coming, you're not rescued yet, but it's coming. It has to be like the greatest moment of your entire life. That moment is like the manger for humanity. We're not saved yet. The cross hasn't come, but the boat has arrived. We were utterly helpless apart from God, completely in our sins, couldn't do anything, dying slowly. But then Christmas came, a baby in the manger, God. I was like the boat. Okay, but what's better than the boat coming? What's better than even getting on top of the boat when you're lost at sea? I'm going back to my analogy. 
the reason why you, gotta get, you wanna get back in the boat, you don't only want, only wanna get back on land, you wanna go home. Like all that you're thinking about, right, is like I wanna go home and be with my loved ones or my family or whoever you're not with. Home is like with the people you love is the goal. When you walk in your house or however your rescue happens at sea, your fake rescue right now, that is like our cross. Like when Jesus on the cross would say to Telestai, it is finished, like your sins are forgiven for good, that is the moment for say you would walk into your home that you are finally once and for all rescued. Eden connects to Bethlehem, which points to Calvary. The cross is the end goal. The be- being with God is the end goal. The cross was the means to do it. The birth of Christ had to happen in order for that to take place. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, for he has rescued us. He even uses that word there. From the kingdom of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. You see, Christmas is for us. It's when hope arrived. It's when joy was restored. When we were utterly helpless, it's when the boat came. Tomorrow night, as we worship as a family, if you're gathering with us for that, I hope that this will make you just sing a little louder. I hope that it'll well up a bit more worship. I hope that you'll bring your family and friends to join in and to stop and reflect on what Christmas is really about. I hope that even tomorrow night and all the chaos with all the kids and all the singing with all the screaming, that we can stop and thank God and remember and reflect upon all that went into this hope. And on Tuesday, as we celebrate Christmas, as you gather with friends and family, I hope that knowing what God did for us will make you a little bit bolder in sharing why you're celebrating what Christmas means to you. Like throughout the day, be reminded of that. And I know it can be awkward and hard. Maybe all your family are unbelievers. But tell them. Ask to pray before dinner. Let's turn on a Christmas worship song. These are all things you can do. And I pray that it would change you. I pray that the truths and the significance of Christmas would change you. And I pray now we would do only what's right, to worship God for who he is and what he's done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. um, Those words are not even enough for what you did. In, in, In the face of humanity being enemies of God, You sent your son out of love. And God, we want to worship you right now because you're worthy of it. All that we've heard, you are worthy of worship for all of eternity. And we will enter in. Those of us that that, that believe and trust and put our hope in Christ, we will be doing that for all of eternity. But God, we ask that we would start now. 
we would, we would proclaim, we would speak out, we would raise our hands, we would get on our knees before our God who loves us and who sent his son to die for us. Would you well up worship in us as we spend uh, this, this bit of time before we leave? Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.